everyone has strengths and weaknesses. So if you start focusing now on your weaknesses, you're toast, frankly. You've got you to lean into your strengths and your weaknesses will resolve themselves over time. But don't allow yourself to have imposter syndrome and to feel like you're not the smartest person in the room. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. All right, episode 40. And today I'm joined by the Chief Communication and Marketing Officer at the Financial Times, Finola McDonald. How are you, Finola? I'm very good and I'm thrilled to be considered the 40th most interesting person at the FT. I don't think I'm in the top 100, but thank you. It's lovely to be here. The order is definitely not made on importance, but it's made on uh, basically based on your agendas. So, uh, Finola, you have a very interesting background. I would really like you to walk us through your career path. Uh, So I have had probably a career in two parts, but they're very related to each other. So I spent the first 10 years plus a little bit in what you might call public policy. Some people call it lobbying, political communication. So um, I had finished a degree in politics in Northern Ireland at the end of the 1990s and I became very interested in the idea of communicating politics and policy and social well-being and so on. And there's a whole backstory to that to do with what was happening in Northern Ireland at the time. But it was a fascinating time and uh, the concept of communication, some might meanly call it spin, became quite fashionable in politics at the time. Anyone old enough to remember Tony Blair's government, for example, that came in at the time here in the UK Um, or Bill Clinton, as it was in the US, or whomever it might have been around the world, politicians had learned that actually it's not enough to have good policy and to be serious about making lives better, etc. You also have to reach people. You have to convince them. You have to build emotion into your communication. And, And so it became a sort of new profession, this idea of political communication. And I was very taken with that. So I, I, did a master's at the time, was lucky enough to be able to do that in public relations and spent then about 10 years working in communication of, of stuff to do with, 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 with public policy. So in an education, an adult education charity to begin with uh, in Scotland. And then gradually I moved into like a business rep group and, and, and then I, I was in Brussels working uh, as a lobbyist with the EU communication. So you're combining there an interest in politics and economics and all of those good nerdy things with an interest in making that real and making it tangible for people and making it a bit interesting. Uh, And then when I was in Brussels, probably 10 years ago, I was beginning to work a lot with international media because the topics I was working on were relevant to international media, but specifically business media economic media and a very good friend of mine from CNBC which is an American news media brand uh, came and we had lunch together in Brussels and I said you know what I really enjoy my work but I wasn't quite happy with where I was uh, in terms of living I moved to Brussels at the wrong time and he said why don't you come and work with us in London we have a role 
and I'm summarising a little bit, but over I came to London and I have spent the second part of my career, about 10 years now, in business news media, working on the communication side. So taking that kind of core grounding in politics and economics and wonky, I'm a bit of a policy wonk person, and moving then into the place where you're trying to make that content appealing to audiences around the world. So two slightly different parts to the journey, but they're completely related. And you wouldn't find me working in an entertainment media company. That's not my bag at all. What what interests me is the kind of content that content that uh, a publisher like the FT produces and then trying to make it more appealing to a bigger range of people. So that's it in a nutshell. What has been maybe the most challenging um, thing that you needed to look at in the past few years here at FT? I mean, it's an interesting one working in communications in a media house. It's different than, let's say for the sake of argument, you're the communications person at, I don't know, a shoe company. Uh, the shoes don't speak. You, you, you are quite in control of the agenda of the organisation. And even though now in the era of social media, customers are more interactive and you, you can't entirely set the agenda, nevertheless, if the company speaks, you have probably orchestrated that. You are coordinating that. You know when you want to say something and how you want to say it. So you can plan quite well and think about your launches. The thing about media is that I don't control the voice of the FT. When I get up in the morning, hundreds of journalists have already set the tone for the day by publishing whatever the relevant story is, or they've done podcasts, or they've been on the BBC talking about our stories. So so you're 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 herding. It's more of a shepherding role than it is. Uh, you might say I like to lead from behind. It's 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 more that you're trying to find the tone of the day and help amplify big stories that are out there. So big investigations, for example, uh, you know, when I we have a big investigation this week about uh, a chap in the city of London who's been appears to have been misbehaving badly in in his organisation and is in trouble because he had a spread in the FT. Um, also, you know, the company Wirecard, German company that the team brought down. Those are big stories. You want the world to hear about them. So we try to think as a team, how do we make that reach further than the FT? How do we get other business channels to cover that? Where can we muster spokespeople around the world and so on? Um, and then on the brand side, I do that too. It's similar. You know, you're trying to find highlights from within the journalism that you can amplify. But it, I would say the biggest challenge is it's less political. It's more about scale and breadth. So news moves really quickly. And the FT is also a complicated business with many different sections to it. So what I find most difficult is giving everybody the time they deserve and the attention they deserve and the publicity, if you like, that they deserve. But still, you have to be able to control the number of things coming out of the organisation on any given day, because otherwise it's really confusing for listeners or for you know, consumers of news if you're trying to promote 10 different things at once or 10 different products in different markets. So I would say um, the biggest challenge that I have every day is trying to deploy a bit of diplomacy to make sure that everybody understands who's at the front of the pack at that particular time and why. Uh, and actually an interviewee for a job recently gave me a great expression. Cappy, if you're listening, thank you. She talked about using her no capital wisely. And I think that's the biggest challenge is saying no wisely and carefully and not always saying no to people, but actually helping whether it's a journalist or 
a business person on any given day understand why we can't give them a lot of attention and why they're not the subject of a press release because on that particular week there's some other product or service or story that we're trying to promote. So, th- so it's more about the politics of managing internal relationships than it is about big crises in the sense of, you know, when an oil company gets in trouble because they're putting black smoke into the air. We, we luckily don't have those kinds of crises at the FT, really. You uh, mentioned something very interesting uh, here. You said different products, our portfolios in different markets. Um, how do you adapt and change the way of communicating depending on where the news needs to land? Well, that's a very interesting topic. And yeah, it's one of the reasons we're at the FT because, it, you know, if you're in a domestic setting, you don't get quite as much challenge in terms of thinking about markets and thinking about audiences. It depends how you look at it. If we think about branding, so we also run the brand advertising work of the FT. So you're trying to make the FT known to audiences around the world. That's a totally different challenge depending on what country you're in because the FT for example is very well known here in the UK most people on the street could identify the FT they may not be reading it they may not be super fans but they'll know what it is they'll have a general concept that the Financial Times is a publication that many people working in business will consume if you go to a market like the US and especially if you leave the major cities many people won't have heard of the FT at all so The brand work we do in the UK, for example, is about trying to make the FT interesting and intriguing to new generations, trying to help people understand why business content is relevant to them. So for this audience, for example, why a younger person should be reading the FT, how it will help their career, what the specific products are that are useful to you if you're in your 20s and you're thinking about moving up the ladder. Whereas in the US, you're literally saying this is the Financial Times. It is a business publication. It is politically independent. You should have a look. But you don't even begin to touch upon what is in, inside it. it. It's a pure awareness play. Um, so, th- so those kinds of things are different in market. And then styles are different. Uh, one of the things that's interesting at the FT is that we're owned by a Japanese company. So we spend a lot of time in Japan. And it's less important now at the FT. But when I was in broadcast TV, uh, Japan was an interesting market because it's it's really considered slightly inappropriate and unusual to take part in broadcast TV opportunities. You know, CEOs are much less egotistical. They don't want to be on the public airwaves building a profile for themselves. It's all about the corporate. Whereas in the States, everybody wants to be on TV. People are clamoring to be in your studio and be famous. So you think about different ways of communicating and you think about different ways of promoting stories in those markets. So there's a huge breath. We could talk all day about this, but it is one of the things that makes life interesting for us. There's never a similar campaign in a similar market. Let's imagine that the, some of our listeners might be very interested in the comms and marketing department and uh, joining uh, your team, so for VFT. What is your best tip to be prepared for a role in your team, especially for junior roles? What are you looking for? Uh, mainly I'm looking for, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a certain attitude or spark. That's very difficult thing to explain in a way but I remember I famously hired a guy who walked in for his interview and as he was prepping to sit down I watched him he rolled up his sleeves and there was something about the way he rolled up his sleeves as he sat down and opened his laptop and I thought there's the guy it was just in the I thought here's a guy who's literally walked in ready to go he really wants this I could I could sort of sense it in him and it's that level of proactivity because frankly at the beginning of your career you you 
you, you won't be certain what you want to do. You might think you are, but you won't. And you won't be certain what you're really good at, what your superpowers are. So I think it's about being a bit of a hustler, being positive, um, being proactive, finding a way around um, and being able to show that if, if you're doing an interview. And that's really about, it doesn't matter so much what you've done in your life or what you've studied, but it's the attitude with which you've done that, you know, a positivity an ability to overcome hurdles and a little bit of resilience, I think. Um, and sometimes you have to build that. But if you can talk in an interview about those kinds of attitudes and challenges you've overcome and things that you went off and did, no matter what the odds were, that's always very impressive. And that helps you stand out from people with really impressive CVs and exam results. But, you know, frankly, everybody has good exam results nowadays. So you you stand out in the sense that you're you're going to give it your all uh, and you're going to try and fit in no matter no matter what you find. This year is a very important one for the Financial Times. It's 130 years of pink. Do we want to talk a bit about uh, that and how relevant it is for a legacy brand that is moving a bit into the digital product but still has that FT pink that everyone smells, sees and reminds? I mean, it would be it it would just be an opportunity missed not to talk about at Pink. And if you don't know the FT, hopefully you do. You're super fans of Virginia and her, her podcast. But, you know, we, we do have this relatively distinctive colour, uh, a salmon pink colour on our printed newspaper. There are a couple of other publications in the world that have it, but certainly on a newsstand here or in New York or whatever, the pink one is the FT. Uh, my six-year-old was in, we were in Madrid recently, and she was like, Mommy, there's your paper. Uh, so it does help us to stand out and equally our website and so on, ft.com, it's it's salmon pink. And we turned pink when we were five years old, partly by accident, quite frankly, but partly because we were looking for a differentiating quality at the time. And so when we celebrate that anniversary this year, it's really an opportunity. The pink piece is slightly irrelevant. The point is, it gives you the opportunity to talk about what differentiates you from the competition. So we talk about being fearlessly pink uh, and what that means and how we've always wanted to stand out, whether it's in terms of the assertiveness of our journalism, whether it's the fact that we were the first uh, newspaper to move to a digital subscriptions model. You know, we, we forced you early on the internet to pay for the FT rather than to give it away because otherwise we wouldn't be here today. Um, we have we have done many firsts down the years in terms of our business and our brand. So it's a nice opportunity to remind people, especially those who've joined recently, what the heritage of the company is. And you'll see lots of luxury brands like, you know, fashion brands and so on do this all the time. They talk about their heritage. But equally, you're saying we've carried that heritage into the modern era. And now you'll find this FT Pink in apps and online and so on. It's not a it's not a dead thing. It's a very much a living thing. But it is about the uniqueness of the FT. And if you work in brand in any brand around the world, that's what you're always trying to do. Find the unique selling proposition and talk about it. So yes, happy anniversary to us and thank you for bringing that up. It's a it's a favorite topic. We did uh, and you guys worked quite a lot on another uh, side of the audience engagement um, that it it's kind of uh, stereotypically related to pink. And I wanted your opinion on this. Um, from your standpoint and with your team, uh, how do you make the FT more attractive for women? And how are you trying to engage with branding uh, opportunities, uh, uh, more women out there to read the Financial Times? Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, topic indeed. So 
I guess there are a lot of challenges with, uh, as you said, call it nicely, a legacy brand, a brand that's been around since the the Victorian era, the late nineteenth late nineteenth century. Um, uh, the FT was traditionally associated with the city of London, the sort of banking and finance industry. The clue is in the name, Financial Times. And and those are very male-dominated spaces and male-dominated industries. So it's not surprising that through history, our readership has mainly been a male uh, readership. And equally, our staffing and a lot of our journalists were, were male for similar reasons, people coming and going out of financial services and so on. Um, I think we've, over the years, that changed gradually, but we've made some very deliberate attempts to change that because business is much more diverse now than it ever was. And if you want new audiences in new markets and younger people, you have to appeal to a broader breadth and outside financial services. So the journalists have done lots on the content front to make it to make our, our journalism more appealing to women. Part of it is about representation, so we have all sorts of tech and tools to help us, for example, make sure that women are quoted in the FT because it would be easy to write a banking story and have quotes from, you know, three men working in the city. But to catch yourself, to hold yourself to account and say, where are the female voices in this? So that makes it a better read for a woman. Photographs of women in business. Again, sometimes people have unconscious bias and they've written a story and they, they haven't realised that there, there, there are no women in that day's paper or whatever. So we try to be very deliberate about that. And then the type of content we do, I mean, this is very interesting, this very podcast, our professional development content, um, pieces like Working It, which is about, you know, life in the professional space, those get bigger numbers of, of, of female readers for whatever reason. So we try to lean into those things and do summary content like... Uh, you know, long story short, newsletters that wrap the week for women and are edited by women so that they have that sensibility to them and they appeal more. But actually, generally, like all aspects of diversity, the more you lean into being more women accessible, the more you make yourself generally more appealing anyway to younger people, to people outside finance, because actually it's about slightly de-jargonizing what you do and it's about where the brand shows up. So we try to show up at sponsorships and partnerships and things that are not traditional. We might be at the IMF world meetings, but we'll also be at, you know, the Conduit Club when they're having a debate about climate change. It's a club with a lot of women activists involved thinking about the issues of the day. So it's a, it's a mix of things, but the good news is we are getting more women readers and we have way more women staff and way more women journalists and a female editor and long may it continue. In the uh, what you just said, you gave me a fantastic assist for my next question, that is sustainability. Um, what are you doing in terms of branding and comms when it comes to um, better understand what the FT is doing as a corporation to be more sustainable? And again, we marry the two bits. So, yes, we have that unique uh, aspect to us of being two things in one. We are a publisher, so we're producing content to influence others. And then we are obviously are an employer business in our own right. So we have to try and mimic the things that we talk about in the journalism within the organisation. Otherwise, we'd be hypocrites, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, on, you're right. On the journalism front, we have lots of climate uh, content. And in fact, from a brand point of view, we created a brand platform. We call it the New Agenda about four years ago, which was saying exactly this about the FT. It was saying we are here for the new agenda of business and the new agenda for business is wider than just financial performance and profit. It's also about diversity and inclusion. It's also about the planet 
and sustainability. And it's also about human rights and so on. So I think it's worth saying that because everything we do as a, from a promotional point of view leans back into that. And how do we make sure that the FT internally and externally is holding itself to a decent place to do business uh, and a decent place to work. But yeah, we are, we're doing lots on sustainability. We're looking at our carbon footprint. This building we're sitting in has got uh, specialist tech in it to make sure it's heating and cooling efficiently and it reduces its own energy use, which is timely given everything that's happening with energy prices and so on. So we do this stuff because it makes good business sense, but also because it's important. We've got a very engaged sustainability group internally who have all sorts of actions and education projects in place for staff to help them think about how they work. We're introducing carbon budgets for business travel. So someone like me who owns a travel budget for lots and lots of people, I will not just be thinking about the cost of travel uh, in future. I'll be thinking about what our what our carbon footprint has been and trying to reduce that and trying to, in this hybrid environment, take advantage of the brilliant digital technologies that we have. Uh, and we also have really strict rules around advertising, for example, where we try, we, 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 we don't, um, we don't allow companies in particular sectors to, to sponsor events in that sector and so on. So we're not giving them a free pass on putting messages out there about older school approaches to business that we would consider to be inappropriate nowadays. So we try and do it holistically. And I've just been reading overnight our company accounts and so on. So this stuff gets published every year uh, to the relevant uh, people showing here's our business performance, here's the profit we made, but also this is what we're doing as a company to be a nice place to work. So that stuff is all really, really important. You can't do business nowadays if you're not thinking about it. I have one last question for you, Finola, and it's a bit more personal. Would you like to share one big challenge and or mistake that you made that you learned the most from? Oh, people make mistakes. So I didn't mention that, that when I went to college, I went to study mechanical engineering. I'm about two modules from being an engineer, partly because I was at a convent school and I was good at maths and science and almost out of spite for the nuns in the 19. 80s who wanted me to be a, a nurse or a teacher because that's how they wanted women to be. There's nothing wrong with being a nurse or a teacher, but they were like the female career path. So I was like, no, I want to be an engineer. I want to work in like Formula One. So I spent three years at university studying engineering before I, I mean, I was able to do a switcheroo then and, and, and move to politics in the same institution. But I, I don't regret any of that. And I'm glad I did it because sometimes you have an itch you need to scratch and I can look back and say, yeah, I tried that. It wasn't for me. I I it, I realized that it it wasn't for me. I wanted to be more I wanted to do something very different. But I think it's okay to I think we are forced certainly in Britain, Ireland to make career decisions very early in life before we even know ourselves. And so I wouldn't panic about your career in your, in your 20s. You may be lucky, you may find a role you really enjoy. It may be related to your education. You may make quick progress. Or you may move around a lot before you actually find your niche. And that's OK. Don't, if you can make that work financially, I mean, that's easy to say if you, you can afford to do that. But I think it takes a while to know yourself. And with a couple of jobs under your belt, even ones you don't like, if you can stick them out for a while, you will learn so much about yourself that will help you make better choices in future. So a small bit of patience. Try not to do regret. It benefits absolutely nobody.
uh, as you just said, look at this from uh, a bit more of a holistic perspective. What is your life experience? What are the things that you want to see and explore? And I found it super fascinating, that, uh, that background, and then how you match it with politics, and then how this landed into media. And like I say, you, you need to be opportunistic. You, you, you know, when I think about people that have worked with me that I've really enjoyed, they've walked into, someone walked into my office once when somebody else had just resigned and was like, can I pick any of this up? And that person became very, I was like, well, yeah, great. Solved the problem for me in the moment. So watch out for opportunities. They come along. Sometimes we don't see them if we've got our head down and we're self-absorbed. Keep an eye out for opportunities in life or in your career because you can miss them. And they go to people who are just that bit sharper and, and, and just more on the ball. So practice that. Practice spotting an opportunity and you, you won't go wrong. Like investors do. Like investors do, absolutely. <laughs> Investing yourself first. Thank you so much, Finola. If there is one thing that we do a bit different in this podcast show is welcoming two young people to ask you directly some questions. So, Alex and Sophie, welcome to our podcast studio. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here. It's so great to see some new, young, fresh faces coming to BFT. You're going to have a tour right after this recording. Alex, over to you. Just introduce yourself and, of course, ask your question to Finola. Um, so, hi, I'm Alex. I am from Toronto, Canada, and I'm currently doing my master's in media communications at the London School of Economics. Um, and I'm currently in the position, uh, along with a lot of my peers, of uh, finishing our master's and then starting our careers in the media communications industry. So it's been a bit of a difficult learning curve, I think, coming to London. And a lot of us are international students, so there's a lot of visa issues on the line as well. Um, and there is the pressure from being with peers that are also, everyone's looking for a job, everyone's interviewing. People have their next step already, and you're in a very competitive environment. Um, and I was listening to an interview you did, actually, with the duvet flip, where you were saying that women often, when you're looking through a job application, don't actually look through every single tick and they maybe say, oh, I'm not qualified for one thing and then move on. Um, and I think also for me and a lot of my friends, it's hard looking into careers that are often traditionally not female. And so for you, I want to know that how did you help, how do you help women get out of this box into new ones that may seem intimidating and male dominated working at the Financial Times as well? Because I think for me, even the word financial for someone that studied media communications can be quite intimidating and um, a little daunting, yeah, getting into a, a career that I haven't really been focused on completely. I think you just have to challenge yourself. I mean, yes, it's, it's known that uh, a, a man, for example, in a workplace will often seek out a promotion more quickly and assertively than a female counterpart and might apply for a job where he has 50 or 60 percent of the, if you like, uh, characteristics that are asked for for the job whereas a woman might wait until she has all of them and it's rare that anybody has all of that I've written job descriptions it's rare that anybody ticks all those boxes and if they did they would probably be a very dull person so I would say go for it I mean certainly the good thing about the public relations industry is that, is that it is quite female but you're right, in, in areas like banking, lots of the PRs and comms people are male. But I would ch just challenge yourself on that. I would push yourself to, to look at sectors that feel more traditionally male if they matter to you. The key thing to my mind about a, a job, and it mightn't be your first or your second job, because sometimes you have to do a job you don't love to get a job you love. But if you're passionate about the thing or the cause, 
for example, if it's climate change and you want to go and work in an energy company to understand more about energy, climate issues, etc., then then you will learn it. Push yourself to learn about the topic and be interested and be passionate because in communications or in brand marketing, passion and uh, understanding and creativity of the issue are, are, are things that you have to have. You can't learn them. You can learn technical skills. You can learn how to, you know, write something or package something or design it or whatever. So I would think about the bit that you already have that you care about and chase that. Anything that's like technical, you can learn it later. Amazing. Thank you. And then within that, how do you feel that you are disrupting the finance space um, in this male dominant industry? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I well, I don't. Well, that's a funny question in a way, because uh, I'm in public relations, which is quite female. But um, and the media industry, my my peers are a mix, I suppose, of male and female as I think about them. And brand is certainly quite female dominated in London. So I'm not sure I'm entirely uh, disrupting within my own world. But in some we're like the Financial Times. I'm just lucky. I, I happen to be here because I, I, I studied and I care about politics. I care about public policy. I care about macroeconomics, that big world, but word, you know, but the world economy and stuff. So I'm a bit of a wonk. So I'm able to hold my own. I'm not intimidated by we have some of the most expert people in the world here to talk about global economics, but I just don't allow myself to be intimidated by their knowledge because there are many things I can do that they can't do. So I think it's just remembering that everybody is different and some people will lean into a particular area of expertise and other people won't. Uh, everyone has strengths and weaknesses. So if you start focusing now on your weaknesses, you're toast, frankly. You've got to, you've got to lean into your strengths and your weaknesses will resolve themselves over time. But don't, don't allow yourself to have imposter syndrome and to feel like you're not the smartest person in the room. Amazing. Thank you. Lovely. Sophie, over to you. <laughs> My name is Sofia Spasenowska. I recently graduated from King's College London with a Master in Emerging Economies and International Development. And I also work at the Department of Communications at the LSC on a media literacy project and the 20th anniversary that I'm organizing. My question today, I was wondering is, how do you expect that AI will impact marketing in the news industry in a sense that do you think that the industry can keep up with the misinformation and disinformation AI can spread, basically? Will this infrastructure sustain this or are changes needed? An excellent question, uh, Sophie. And having said that I'm not easily intimidated, I'm my brain is slightly running for an answer to that. Yeah, look, AI is... Um, Technologies in particular come as huge fads like AI is suddenly the thing everybody is talking about and it will have its moment and it certainly isn't going away. But it, I think we're all thinking really hard about it right now, almost too early. We, we don't, as non-specialists, non-AI geeks, know its full potential. So it's quite hard to give you a definitive answer about where this all goes. Um, I will say that it, of course has the potential to really enhance creativity. It can be helped in, you know, helpful in marketing campaigns and so on with the data side of things, with helping to number crunch really quickly, helping to identify audiences. It can do a lot of that kind of process efficiency work that could free creative people up to do that more thoughtful and emotional side of things. So there's definitely potential there. 
but I don't think we know yet what it is. I I think in an organisation like this, our primary concern right now is to sort of ensure that our journalism is not tainted by AI, that readers of the FT still know they're reading human generated content that's read by and signed off by editors. Uh, we ha- and that's where the fake news piece comes in. But certainly in areas like marketing, we already use some AI. We use machine learning. We know how to uh, personalize a web experience for you. You know, we serve you content that's similar to content you've liked before. So it's clearly already really important in marketing. But where it all ends, I really couldn't say. But I hope that it frees up, as I say, human endeavor to do stuff that's more emotional, more spiritual, more creative, more fun and takes a little bit of the sort of data-driven hard work out of that. But that's a hope. Ask me again in two years, five years, ten years. If I'm even still here, you might just be talking to a bot and I could have retired. (laughs) So thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you, Alex. And of course, thank you so much, Finola, for all your insights, really working us through your uh, formamentis, your way of looking at things from uh, your comms and branding perspective, but above all uh, from uh, your amazing experience uh, that you had uh, in uh, the comms space and now here at the Financial Times. I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, really thank you so much for your time. Not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, listeners. Do check all the new products that we have for you here at FT. Check out all other episodes and our social media and up for the next episode. Bye. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.